While fleeing Apaches, this gentleman from Virginia found a strangely shimmering cave. When he entered it, he discovered his body had somehow split in two. One form lay dead on the cave floor, while the other was mystically transported through time and space to the planet Mars. Stan Lee presents Edgar Rice Burroughs, John Carter, Warlord of Mars. The Comic Book Time Machine presents Marvel's Cosmic Comics, exploring Marvel's licensed sci-fi and fantasy during the Star Wars period. Episode 100 of both Marvel's Cosmic Comics and the Comic Book Time Machine, The Headmen of Mars. John Carter, Warlord of Mars, Annual Number 2, Cover date, 1978. Hello and welcome back to Marvel's Cosmic Comics and the comic book time machine. And this episode means, well, it means we've hit a, a strange sort of milestone uh, because Marvel's Cosmic Comics is split up the way it is and it's its own feed. And then the comic book time machine is a, a second feed that includes some of the Marvel Cosmic Comics things. But episode 100 for both of these kind of happened at the same time, which is kind of cool. And which made it easier for me to number both of them. I mean, this is kind of the inside baseball stuff, but the Marvel's Cosmic Comic feed goes one issue at a time, one comic book at a time. And then I take each of the cover date uh, segments uh, and, and compile them together into an omnibus that would include multiple titles. And then that goes into the main feed as a single episode. So, you know, six or seven episodes of Marvel's Cosmic Comics get put together and then that gets put into the comic time machine as a great big long two to two and a half hour episode that just covers that month. But for the John Carter annual and for some of the uh, other Star Wars stuff that's not part of the actual monthly um indexing that i'm doing for example the princess leia episode that was just a couple episodes ago uh also the um movie adaptation hardcovers that i did an episode about they are one episode in marvel's cosmic comics and one episode in comic book time machine it's the same episode with very uh little differences i honestly don't even remember if i've if i did different openings for them i don't think i did it doesn't matter though because here we are and comic book time machine got to episode 100 which is awesome and fun and exciting. And John Carter, Warlord of Mars, annual number two, has been the planned episode number 100 for the Marvel's Cosmic Comics thing, and they lined up. They lined up nicely. Now, it has taken a while to get here um, <laughs> because it, I won't call it a hiatus because it wasn't a hiatus, although I guess technically speaking, it probably is the very definition of a hiatus, but it was not intended to be a hiatus. That's not the way things worked. Uh, it just happened this way where I had anytime comic book time machine goes on a hiatus. It generally means I'm actually writing comics and I had a deadline that came and I had to just say, you know what? I there's certain podcasting responsibilities that I have that are weekly. Uh, welcome to level seven weekly. I have uh, friends that I podcast with and we have commitment to each other to do welcome to level seven every week. 
for every episode of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. as it comes out. Now, there have been times when I've been able to take time off from that because I have other hosts now on there who were able to do it uh, without me. For example, the upcoming episode, I mean, I don't know when this episode and that episode are going to come out with each other. So it might be before this one or after this one. But um, I'll be on vacation. Uh, starting, you know, in two, in two days after I record this, I'll be on vacation. And so they'll be able to do that episode and I won't be with them. That's fine. But we have a weekly commitment to that. Strangers and Aliens, same kind of thing because of the people I podcast with. We have a weekly commitment. We want to get content out there. Comic Book Time Machine is much more, well, it's looser. And it's the one that I can put on the back burner the, the quickest and will be the first one to go on the back burner just because of the it's more of the hobby i mean don't get me wrong welcome to level seven and stranger aliens are both hobby podcasts we do not make money off of them um i mean that's not entirely true i've made 30 dollars off of those podcasts uh strangers and aliens um and then we did make a little bit of money enough to buy a soundboard with welcome to level seven so uh but the net gain is not very much and it's just they're they're a different type of podcast and comic book time machine is the one that's that's the quickest one the first one that's going to go on the back burner and so that's why there is a lot of time where there were no episodes. We weren't done. Comic Book Time Machine was not pod faded. It's not canceled or anything like that. No, no, no. It's just I had a comic book to work on and every spare moment that wasn't with family or at my day job went into that comic book script. And then my spare time stuff that was not working or family went into Welcome to Level 7 and Strangers and Aliens. And so unfortunately, Comic Book Time Machine kind of got the shaft this time around but all that said it's still episode 100 and that's fun and throughout the summer i'll be able to keep up a better schedule with comic book time machine because honestly i love comic book time machine it's just me reading comics and then talking about them and that's actually one of the reasons why this is the first one to get kind of put off by uh, to the wayside i didn't read many comics in the last few weeks in fact in the last three weeks I hadn't read a, a comic book for fun uh, at all. Now, I read Man-Thing, but I didn't read a comic book for fun <laughs> at all in the last few weeks. Now, what I just said about Man-Thing, I'll be getting to Man-Thing in a couple of, uh, of episodes from now uh, on Comic Book Time Machine's regular feed. But there's a new Man-Thing comic out there. And there's a reason why there wasn't a big push for me to do any coverage of the Man-Thing comic in Comic Book Time Machine. Uh, and I'm just going to leave it at that. We'll come back to that later. But for this episode, uh, the other thing I want to do is I want to do something special for annuals. And when it comes to the John Carter Warlord of Mars annual number one, I had Marv Wolfman come on and talk about his work on that time. And that was a lot of fun. Now, I didn't have the same kind of thing here where I, I you know, interviewed a creator or something like that. I was trying to think of something fun to do. Um, but I didn't want to have to do the same thing. And honestly, I didn't, you know, the people who worked on this episode were Bill Mantlow, uh, on this episode, this, this issue, Bill Mantlow, Ernie Chan, um, Bill Mantlow is still in the hospital. Um, Ernie Chan, I, I don't think he is still with us, but, uh, I was not planning on trying to contact anyone anyway. Uh, I did want to do something different though. And so for this episode, I'm going to talk about the annual, the comic book. And then I thought it'd be fun to do something with the movie. And then I remembered I already did something with the movie. I did an episode of Strangers and Aliens about John Carter, the movie right after it came out. I did it with my friend, Steve McDonald. So that's what I'm doing to make this something different, something odd, I guess. 
And, uh, you know, for those of you who are into uh, numerology and different things like that, uh, the episode about John Carter, Warlord of Mars from Strangers and Aliens, uh, it was episode 12 from March 12th of 2012. Yeah, it doesn't mean anything, but there's lots of 12s there. Um, anyway, <laughs> it's kind of a time capsule in some ways, the review of that movie. Um, it's a reminder that four years ago, I still, I, I didn't know how to say Michael Giacchino, Giacchino. Um, and four years later, five years later, I, I still don't know how to say it. Uh, it was an episode that we intended to be very, very short, but it ended up being an hour long and it was a lot of fun because we were pleasantly surprised by the movie. And so that will be part two. But for part one, we're talking about John Carter, Warlord of Mars, annual number two, the publisher, as you know, Marvel, the cover date, 1978, because it was an annual. But the on sale date was June 20th. Cover price, 60 cents, and the page count, 48 pages. Marv Wolfman did work as the editor on this book, which is cool. The title, The Headmen of Mars, uh, the story itself had 34 pages, and the writer was Bill Mantlow, the artist Ernie Chan, the letterer John Costanza, and the colorist was Francois Mouly, something like that. All that information comes from Mike's amazing world of comics at dcindexes.com. And so we're going to fire up the time machine, go and purchase a 60-cent comic with a 34-page story in it. Man, that's the one bad thing about doing this podcast is I, I get jealous. I get jealous of the old days. Maybe I shouldn't, but uh, this being an annual is a little bit longer story and it actually has a handful of chapters. And so chapter one was Gale, just one word. And John Carter uh, we're going to go chapter by chapter here, and so I'll just give a little bit of a plot synopsis, and then we will get into the um, kind of the the review, the um, dissection, just looking at my thoughts about each chapter. But chapter one starts with John Carter, Dejah Thoris, and Tars Tarkas on a wind ship, and they're taking this tour of inspection. And when they left, the skies were clear, but now it's a storm, a terrible storm. And it requires rescues of and daring do and, and swinging on ropes and leaping off the ship and jetpacks. And when one of the uh, soldiers or the, the men that's with them gets thrown off the ship, John Carter gets his jetpack and he swings on a rope with this jet. It's not really a jetpack. It's called an equilibrium motor. But he swings on a rope and uses that to catch the guy. But then he gets hit in the head and the guy is holding onto the rope. But John Carter is not. And he falls into unconsciousness. But he activates his jetpack as he kind of falls away from the ship into the storm. And so with this, I think we're off to a good start. Uh, this is a dramatic opening um, it does its job and it does it well. And what's the job for this, this chapter separate John Carter from his friends to throw him into a solo adventure. And yeah, it does it well. And that's what we need to have happen here. Uh, I don't know. I haven't read the book that this is based on, but this is based on a, an actual book by Edgar Rice Burroughs. And 
So it's an adaptation of that. So I don't know if that's what happens in the book or if it's just a solo adventure. And it's even quite possible that it wasn't even John Carter. Um, but I, I don't know anything about the book. Um, I've had plenty of time to find it and read it or read about it. I just haven't done that. So like I said, though, off to a good start. And it is exciting and it is dramatic. And um, the flying ship, you know, they cut the sails so that the, the wind won't take them too far or, or you know, even tumble them over. Um the jetpack isn't actually a jetpack. Like I said, it's an equilibrium motor, uh, which I love clunky sci-fi terminology from the past. Um, nowadays, if you did something like that and called something like that, you would be doing it because the character who calls it that is, is quirky or you're doing it to give some sort of uh, uh, just cheesy camp factor to, to your work. But I just love clunky sci-fi things. Now, it, it, the way it works, it uses the anti-gravitational eighth rays that uh, are readily available on on Mars, I guess. And um, yeah, so it, it it really is not so much for flying as much as it is for keeping your equilibrium. Um, I think when maybe you're working on like the outside of something that's flying or or something like that. But he uses it to give himself a more gentle landing. And he then lands in Chapter 2. Now, where does he land in Chapter 2? He lands in the land of the headless humans. And all I can think of, in the land of the headless humans. That's all I can think of when I read that. But headless humans, man. Uh, so in this chapter, the jetpack allows him to land safely in this strange land. And he wakes up and he's fine. And he starts looking around and he finds headless humans. And they're just these human bodies with no heads crawling around on all fours. They're being whipped by this creature who has antenna like an Andorian from Star Trek. And they are feeding themselves <laughs> with food. They're picking it up with their hands and pushing it into the hole where their throat would be in their neck. And it's really, really weird. It's unsettling. And I kind of like it because it's weird and unsettling. Uh, now, there are two beautiful red humans. That's a man and a woman. And they walk through this horror show that is the headless humans. And Carter assumes that those humans are like him and Dejah Thoris, uh, that they're held captive by the super strong guy who uh, has the whip, the antenna man. Uh, so that night, while John is outside the city and he's eating, he happens to see this she-banth which is uh, kind of a lion-like character with, with six legs, uh, a Martian creature. And it's attacking one of the antenna men, uh, one of those kind of red men with, with antenna that look like an Andorian. And there's, <laughs> he sees something in the struggle, and that's that when, <laughs> when this, the creature is fighting this guy, the guy's head just completely falls off. And it turns out the head of the guy, the antenna man is actually a creature itself. And it has these spider legs that come detached and then it crawls back on the body and reattaches itself. And the antenna guy runs away. So John Carter, he actually was helping that guy and he continues the fight against the Banth creatures. And then, uh, after that fight, he gets attacked by one of the four armed great white ape creatures that are on Mars. And the creature that he saved, the guy with the antenna that the head like had spider legs uh, is just sitting and watching while the white ape grapples and holds John Carter. <laughs> and 
okay, so yeah, with headless humans, you got my attention. You got my attention. But now with this, with this kind of craziness, I'm really interested. I mean, I'm about as surprised as John Carter is to see uh, this head. And the way it works in the comic is there's a panel where the guy is just laying on the ground and the head is on the ground, you know, a couple feet in front of him, in front of his hands. And then it, the head rises up from the ground and then the head walks over and kind of puts itself into place. And then the legs kind of merge into the body at the, you know, around the neck area. And then the guy just runs away. <laughs> and, um, it's it's weird and it's unexpected and um it is pretty horrific <laughs> so um it's interesting too because just as just before we get into this this uh scene where we first see the headless humans you know John Carter is walking he's like I'm still alive and where there's life there's hope and then he walks into a place where there's just a whole bunch of humans being whipped by a dude and those humans have no heads <laughs> and so yeah, where there's life, there's hope, but that doesn't look too hopeful. Uh, it's pretty horrific. The other thing I didn't notice until I was doing a reread recently was that the two humans, uh, and this is, you know, kind of giving it away, although we're going to spoil the whole story eventually. The two humans have these neck braces on, these kind of golden neck pieces that go from uh, their shoulders up to their jawline. And uh, I should have noticed that before. But now that I've said it to you, um, when you read it, you'll notice it. But uh, you also know what we're getting into at the end of the story here. Uh, so from there, we go into chapter three and chapter three is called Strange Companions. And so those two guys, uh, the white ape and the antenna guy, they they're friends with each other. And the antenna guy trusts the white ape and the white ape guy knows John Carter knows who he is. And so the antenna guy is willing to give John Carter a chance and we get their backstory. It's backstory time. Tal Tarig is the white ape. Now, does that seem weird to you? Well, it should because that's actually a similar name to some of the people that belong to Mars, not ape creatures, but humans with sentience. Uh, the other guy is Ard of Bantum and they're out there avoiding patrols. They're trying to get away. And so I'm going to go ahead and read their backstory because the backstory of uh, Ard is this. And it's actually the backstory of the headless humans as well. And that's part of why I think it's important to read here because it's <laughs> really interesting. Now the art is very interesting when you see it. It's very good. I mean this, the whole thing, I, I love the artwork in this, this whole issue, but um you see these creatures that are giant hulking human bodies with tiny, tiny heads. And then these other creatures that are kind of gnomish little bodies with giant heads and they don't have antennas yet, but we're, we're going to get to the antenna because we have some, um, well, there, there's some evolution to get through here. You see, according to the, the character in the book, we Caldanes believe that nature from the beginning of time has labored toward the creation of the perfect brain. Ages ago, our heads were smaller, our bodies larger. We were physically weak, and we survived by stealing the food off large, stupid creatures who lived as we did in caves. Their ex this existence was hard on my ancestors. So in time, they began to ride upon the backs of those primitive rikors. 
Soon, relying on our larger brains for guidance, the Rikor's own heads began to atrophy and disappear entirely. They became dependent on the Kaldanes. We think for the Rikors while they labor for us. It is a truly fair and equitable arrangement. A perfect arrangement, in fact. When not mounted upon our Rikors, we Kaldanes live in burrows dug deep into the earth. We have no lungs, and so do not need air in these subterranean quarters. Our king, Tak, is a huge Kaldane. He rules over all Bantum. It was Tak's insistence that we Kaldanes, as beings of pure intellect, should never feel emotion. That led to my troubles, for I had dared to feel to fall in love. And so then it shows him being disgraced and uh, banished forever because he fell in love. Now, Tack is this kind of giant brain creature and is much bigger than the other um, Caldanes, I guess. Uh, their, their bodies are the head, which is the size of a regular human head. And then they have these spindly little legs whereas this thing looks like i mean it's it's probably when it stands up on his spindly legs he's probably at least as tall as a regular human but that head is enormous and with a you know giant bulging brain that you know you look at and you just say to yourself oh super intelligent because the brain has gone further than the skull can contain <laughs> so then um tal 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 tarag uh he gets excited so he can give his backstory now in his backstory we find out that um <laughs> well I'll, I'll just read it the Caldane king disp dispatched ard's beloved to the laboratory of he who had been called the mastermind of mars raz thavis and then we see that um some uh, Caldanes are bringing the head of the woman that ard loved bringing that head to um the scientist who has the two beautiful humans uh on on slabs in, in a, um, a laboratory setting, uh, with a dry giggle, the incredibly ancient scientist examined the anesthetized Kaldane Sar. So basically what was happening is, um, Tal Tarag's lover and him were on these slabs in the laboratory. And, um, one brain was transplanted, transplanted. It was, um, Sar, who is Ard's lover that was put into Tal Tarag's lover's body. <laughs> the other body, Tal Tarag's body was given a brain from a soldier who was loyal to the Caldane people. And so now they were spies that could go into the regular world and um, not look like they're Endorians from Star Trek or, uh, you know, the, the whole separating head kind of thing. So the scientist went ahead just for kicks and giggles and put Tal Tarag's brain into a white ape. So now both of them, their beloved is in danger and both of them, their beloved is mashed together. So they're both in love with the same woman kind of, but not quite. And so it's, it's a cool segment. It's a nice backstory and it gives them both reason to be angry. Tal Tarag went ahead and stole the brain of uh, his lover, hoping that they could, you know, get this whole brain game of musical chairs uh, sorted out, um, which, you know, that becomes then the mission. 
that becomes our adventure. What is our adventure? Well, we're going to find out if we can uh, rescue and save these two women. And so we move to chapter four, which is rescue. It's storm in the castle time. It's battling through the castle time. Um, as they're going through the castle and going through the battle, Ard is wounded horribly, but it doesn't matter. His head lives. And so he just switches bodies, <laughs> you know, where there's life, there's hope. And they end up in a locked tower with the two human Martian people, uh, the bodies of them, those two beautiful people that John Carter saw before. Those are the bodies that house, um, well, the woman's body has Ard's lover's brain in it. And yeah, so <laughs> they, they're trapped in this tower and there's this loud growl and that makes uh, Ard say that they're doomed because of what is that thing that horribly growls. And yeah. <laughs> so the um, there's one little bit of, of interesting exposition here where John Carter's narration says, my yet unborn daughter would one day tell me there would be others in Bantum to also feel as Arid did as far as like falling in love. And that suggests to me that while this is an adaptation of the headman of Mars, that the actual story, the headman of Mars is very similar to this, but takes place with characters that aren't John Carter. And I really need to find out. And really what it comes down to is I need to read these novels. Uh, I just haven't gotten around to it. <laughs> but yeah. Anyway, um, the art here is energetic and it's, you know, the battles are exciting and there's some really good stuff going on with the ape creature. And, and uh, again, you know, we get the, the whole head just pulling itself off the body and reattaching itself to another living body, safe body. And then we move to chapter five and chapter five is just called horror. <laughs> and yes, that's a great title for this chapter. Um, tack. The king of Bantum is in the tower with them and he communicates with them by just driving his thoughts into them. And even John Carter has no defense here. Now, John Carter, you know, he's had defense to this kind of thing before, but um, he has no defense. And so he speaks to all of them. He promises death to all of them. And Ard, under his control, just can't control himself uh, detaches from his body and just walks over to tack and tack just fries him and kills him. It's fried by a tentacle. And then they see that the red Martians are <laughs> mutating and it turns out their heads are removable and they are a new breed. The operation was not just to create spies, but to create this new breed and and they mutated them into this human seeming Caldane and they're able to have a human head on the headless Riker bodies and it's bad news. And so Tal Tarek goes crazy, totally breaks out of the control that that attack had on them. And yeah, John Carter kills one of the, the heads and the ape guy. It's it's ape body versus Caldane brain. It's intellect versus um, physical strength. And John Carter, seeing what's happening, leaves him to die a warrior's death because uh, that's the best way to honor him is to let him avenge the losses uh, of his beloved. 
and actually the loss of his beloved, his best friend, and his best friend's beloved. I mean, they're they're all kind of just done. And then we get a one-page escape from the castle. He finds a flyer and flies over to Dejah Thoros. All done. And it reminds me, actually, of a story that Neil Gaiman did in World's End, where there's um, – I really don't remember much about the story other than there's all this relationship stuff. And it involves this guy, this kind of swashbuckler getting um, you know, put in prison. And it's just this quick two panels. And then I escaped. But that's not important to the story. And then we get on with the story. And so you're skipping over what in a comic book would be just you know, a few pages of action and adventure. Well, that happens here too because it's just done. And so yeah, overall, there's cool ideas. There's horrific moments. That, but then the, the wrap-up, the ending is kind of anticlimactic. And there's some really cool splash pages in here too, but they're almost always like the first page of each chapter. And I really feel like the battle scene between Tal, Tarag, and Tak should have had a splash page or or something. The When he jumps to attack, you get this panel of just pure anger for him and then he leaps away from john carter's side toward the creature the the tack creature and then in the final page before the that last page of escape um you get this incredible looking just really really neat looking panel of uh tal tarag and and uh tack grappling with each other and there's tentacles wrapped around this this gorilla with four arms and um, it's brain versus brawn and it's, it, it should have been a splash page. It should have been a splash page. Now that said, this whole kind of compressed ending where you just, okay, the, we had the climax and now we're just going to get to the end. We're just going to finish this up, wrap it up. And he, so he escapes in three panels. He jumps into a ship and flies away. And then in the final panel, he's in Dejah Thoris's arms. Well, I mean, I've had that happen to me. Um, I wrote a book called Kingdoms. And when I got to the end, this is a long book, 150 pages, uh, comic book, though. And so I get to the end and I realize I ran out of pages and I actually needed, you know, and so I the last couple of pages have some really small panels in them because I just ran out of room and didn't have time to go back and, and readjust. And so I I'm I'm guilty of this myself. It's happened to me. And actually, when it happened to me, it was much worse now. Um. <laughs> they they actually it's it's it works it works i just um and maybe it wouldn't bother me so much if they had spent a little bit more time with the uh the battle between tack and tal tarag but you know they're building a mystery and that's really neat and then they build it up to this kind of horrific moment where you realize uh the worst possible scenario has happened they're there to rescue uh the love of their lives loves of their lives and they can't be rescued because they have mutated into something else and they are, they're not, they can't be fixed. And so John Carter actually kills them and then leaves Tal Tarag to, to take over and, and deal with Tack. So overall, John Carter, Warlord of Mars, annual number two, um, out of the second set, the second year, I should say, of John Carter, Warlord of Mars, it's really good. It's really good. Uh, the Marv Wolfman stuff is the best of the best, but this annual number two was a really good annual, and I really, really liked it, and especially the splash pages. It comes recommended from me. So something else that comes recommended from me, the John Carter movie. And so what I'm about to play right now is, um, like I said, it's a podcast that I recorded in uh, 2012, 
and it's with my friend Steve McDonald, who is uh, someone I've been podcasting with for years and years, but that was the 12th episode of our Strangers and Aliens podcast, and it was just the two of us. And so I'm going to play that now, and uh, I'll just say that my opinion of the movie has not changed much. We'll just say that. So here's Steve McDonald and me from 2012. Hello and welcome all you strangers and aliens to the Strangers and Aliens podcast and we are doing a special mini-sode which um, generally for us tend to be you know smaller topics and just just two of the three sci-fi guys and so today it's me Ben Avery and, and me, Steve McDonald and Dr. Jace is not here he is taking care of his family which yeah. is now a family of three Awesome. Yes, very nice. Congratulations, Dr. Jace. Yes, congratulations. And, you know, Steve and I were hoping it'd be a boy and that they would name it, you know, Benjamin, Stephen, O'Neill. Or or Stephen, Benjamin. We're we're really hoping. Either either way, of course, Benjamin, Stephen would be better, but. Oh, the Stephen Benjamin just has that ring, that roll to it that you you look for in a name. Not the stiltedness of a Benjamin statement. It just sounds like a robot or something. But yeah, I, I see your point. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like a robot if if a robot is saying it. But um, yeah, Benjamin. I just said it, Benjamin Stephen. <laughs> Benjamin Stephen O'Neill. That sounds that has a ring. Oh well, it's not a boy, so it doesn't matter. No, no but congratulations, awesome. Yes. So um, we are putting together this mini-sode because of a movie that came out this weekend that both Steve and I had – well, I, don't, I won't say both Steve and I had the pleasure of seeing because I don't, <laughs> I don't want to give away the ending of, of the us, podcast. Of we, we, we haven't talked about it yet, so you guys are getting this fresh. We went and saw uh, – not together, of course, because um, no. we are you know, hundreds of miles away. But uh, we both went and saw John Carter this weekend. And just as a disclaimer, I'm just going to let you know where I saw it, although if I could tell you the address, it would mean nothing. But I saw it at one of those IMAX 3D giant screen theaters. And you saw it in 3D? I saw it in 3D, one of the biggest screens in America. So I did not. I okay. saw it in 3D on one of the smallest screens in America. <laughs> um, and Downloaded to an iPhone. And <laughs> I'm going to tell you something. I was disappointed that I had to see it in 3D. I did not want to see it in 3D. You know, Part I, of it is the cheapskate in me. I wanted to. <laughs> I didn't want to have to pay the what is it rental or I don't know if you're buying those glasses or what because they asked for yeah, them you're, back. You're renting them, but um, yeah, you know, but anyway, I. I the only showings there was there was two right. not three D showings yeah. in the afternoon today. Um, well, when I heard it wasn't it wasn't actually shot in three D. It was given like the three D oh. wash. You know, I was worried about yeah. that because yeah. I heard all the horror stories about um, Clash of the Titans. That 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 movie in three D just was not a good thing to behold. I yeah. didn't hear many good things about it in two D either. <laughs> but it was it was a fun action pick. I mean, you really can't go too far. I'll tell you the you trailer for the sequel, that. man. That looks crazy. It does, but you know what? It it also looks like you know just a fun action flick. Does I don't think like it's more a, of the same. For I don't the, think the it's it's. One. I don't think it's a game changer. You oh. know, I, there's certain movies where you're like, okay, this is out of the ballpark. Well, okay, so. <laughs> 
back to John Carter Mars. I wanted to see it in 2D, saw it in 3D, but the 3D yep. didn't bother me. No. At no. all. 3D, for what it was, the 3D, they did well with. Yeah. So I think the way we should do this here, Steve, is we talk about the movie. Okay. And I've got a couple things that I'd like to kind of discuss. You said you had some questions you wanted to ask me, um, mm-hmm. assuming about, like, what did I think about something that you had an opinion about as well? Right, yeah. And then at the end, let's uh, just tell everyone if we recommend it or not. Okay, cool. Yeah, keep right. everyone in suspense. So, yes. so here's our movie. John Carter, he's from Earth. He's from Civil yeah. War. Mm-hmm. He gets sent to Mars. I won't explain how because it actually ties into a whole bunch of right. plot pot things. But he goes to Mars where he finds himself caught in a battle – for supremacy of the planet between right. two human clans. Or human-looking. Well, they bleed blue. They bleed blue, but there's and, everything on the planet bleeds blue. And and so they, 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 they're human. I mean, they seem human, but they don't have the special powers that he has. Right. Because they're from the, the planet. Right. Um, and then you have the, what are they called? The Thrall. Th- th- Thrawn? There's the the Tharks, Tharks. which are the 15-foot the primitives, let's say. Which, as far as I can tell, those creatures were 100% CGI. I mean, I, it I just felt like it. I mean, I shouldn't say it felt like it. It felt like there was no other way they could have done that so perfectly. Yeah, I think, I think they had stand-ins while they were filming, but you know, then they just CGI'd over, these, over their stand-ins. And there's this whole planetary war. Right, going on, and, and it feels interplanetary because they did so much with just the different places on Mars. Well, you know, and s- I was surprised s- how often they they referred to and and you know f- flashback to Earth. Mm-hmm. Like I was surprised yeah. how much they used Earth, considering you know all the Mars stuff that was going on. Right. Yeah. Um, and so he gets involved, and you know, against his will, and like classic hero journey kind of thing going on. So the first thing I wanted to touch on, and this I did tell you already, um, because mm-hmm. I bought the soundtrack a couple days ago, and right. it's, it's Michael Giacchino. I, I, I know I'm not saying his name right, but that's the way it seems like it should be said, uh, who did the music for the new Star Trek movie. He did the music for Lost. He did the music for um, a bunch of Pixar movies lately, uh, Speed Racer, um, and he's one of he, – he's not my favorite composer. But if uh, if if I was to say like my favorite composer now, it would be him. Like from the current time, right now. If you're going to include like history of film, I wouldn't include him. Okay, but you would you would include he's, John Williams. Yeah, in that John pile Williams, and, Jerry Goldsmith, um, John he's Barry. Your favorite. Even but, even on top of those. Well, no, he's my favorite of the new guard, I guess. Like okay. I, I enjoy his soundtracks and his soundtrack for John Carter, listening to it without any you know movie, and, and without having seen any of the movie. Right. Uh, that soundtrack it it harkens back to some of those old, old movies. You know your James Horner and your John John Williams and mm-hmm. I also uh, some of it sounded to me or reminded me of the the Stargate SG one soundtrack from the TV series. Even just kind of have that world sound to it. Right, um, but then Which that is adventure sound for. too. Yeah. It just it felt like it. It was pulled from an '80s action movie, an '80s sci-fi action movie, where they still had that big, sci- uh, big orchestra feel. And I don't know I really I liked listening to it alone, and then with the movie, it was it was nice too. 
cool. So, what did you think of the the music? Did it distract you, or did it, did it pull you along? You know what? It, it it takes a very special soundtrack for me nowadays to really say that the music had any effect on me. And I, I it, it's terrible because there's so much great music being put into the into the movies. But I think it's for me that's what makes the movie good is it doesn't take me out of the movie. And it did. Um, what's his name? Giagino, whatever his name is. It, it, it kept the movie going for me. It, it made the movie, you know, it, it, it touched all the little things uh-huh. that you're supposed to. So, um, and there's one scene I want to talk with you about then mm-hmm. with the music. Okay. But um, I want to get to that scene later. Okay. Um, so, all right, well, what about you? What do you what's, what's first on your plate for discussing John Carter? John Carter, not John Carter of Mars. Well, no, but still. John Carter. The the name of the first book was not John Carter of Mars anyway. It was Princess of Mars. A Princess of Mars. But you can't name a a movie A Princess of Mars and expect, you know, 10-year-old boys to flock to it. Well, Uh, (laughs) I don't know. The princess was pretty. Uh, If it was 13-year-old boys, that would be one thing. (laughs) But this is – I actually took a 10-year-old and an 11-year-old and they said that that the – the, their least favorite part was the kissing part, and I think that there was like one kissing part. Yeah, so. <laughs> I don't even remember. I mean, they kissed. Well, uh, spoilers. We got to be careful. So, just, just, yeah, maybe there was, but yeah, that know, one part, um, maybe they did. But I think it was it was just one of those things where it, it wasn't a heavy element of the movie. Um, you know, the the love interest was was sort of like gentle. It wasn't, you know, a, a, a Luke and Leia, then a Luke and Han thing, and you know, a Luke was, and Han. <laughs> you know, Luke and Han as as her love interests, okay. and then all of a sudden it switched over to just Han. <laughs> it was definitely not a Luke and Han. Thing. Yeah, it was a different movie, but yeah. Um, yeah. You know, I was surprised how much of it there was, though, and and honestly, with that relationship, then I was willing to go with the relationship. You yeah, know, and and go with that. Just that. I mean, it's an action movie, and so <laughs> in an action movie, you put a woman on the screen with the hero, and they're going to fall in love. You know, yes. but yes. they actually Although, worked on some of that with with this. It gave it a little bit of a character push, anyway. Although this this does lead into a, a, a mild criticism that I have All right. about the movie, and and uh, as well acted as uh, her part was. She's a princess. She's right. a scientist. Yes. And she is a world-class combatant. Yeah. Skilled with the sword and the, all the jumping around and all that stuff. And I'm like, <laughs> okay, it, that could be, but we don't see any build-up to that. We see her as uh, a scientist, we see her as a princess, and then she's thrust into this situation where, for all intents and purposes, if you don't know anything about the genre, you don't know anything about what's expected of a character like this and of this situation, all of a sudden she turns on, you know, she flips a switch, and she's a killing machine. I don't know. I, I could kind of go with that simply because they're at war, and everyone on the planet seems to be you know, adept at fighting. There's, it just seemed to be like... But even that, if everyone is adept at fighting, then why would a princess scientist 
have anything <laughs> except just defensive skills to get out of a situation and not thrust herself into the middle. I mean, she just injected herself into the middle of the entire thing. Yeah, but if you're talking about that first scene, I, mean, I don't want to give too many specifics, but, you know, she left. You know? She, I don't know. That, well, it, was, it was just something where it... it that I was just, just wondering, is there anything this woman can't do? Yeah, I know. I, mean, I was expecting her to fly at some point, but that brings me to another point. Well, she did. She could fly too, not fly like Superman, but but the, she's and, a pilot. Inter- interesting that you brought up Superman is that in the original, uh, in the original incarnation, well, not the very original, but the, as originally published by DC Comics, uh, Superman had basically the skills and the powers that John Carter has. Yeah, and this is kind of cool. I don't want to give away too much, and you know, because ultimately, I, I think so, if we if we are going to recommend this, then we're hoping that people will go see the movie. But oh, yeah. um, this is a nice twist on that whole Superman idea, where instead mm-hmm. of the Kryptonian coming to Earth and having special powers because of you know our sun and our gravity, mm-hmm. you've got the Earthling going to Mars and having special powers, which you've probably seen in the commercials, where he's just like. Jumping. You know, f- jumping like over <laughs> a city block. You know, right. you can leap tall buildings in a single bound. Yes, um, and I like that. I do, and you know, when when I have dreams of flying, it's like that. I don't have dreams of soaring. I have dreams of wild jumping and and just like that. So that was a real fun callback to you know when i was a kid and i would have these dreams of me flying but it was never actual flying and i was like how come i can't just fly and i think because just my logic kicked in and said you can't fly and then the half logic in in your dream says well okay you can't fly but you can do this and (laughs) and i would just always do that you know i would i would be jumping in these wild long jumps that would never land and it it was just fantastic to see it on the screen um and almost to to transplant myself into the character even though it was you know i'm not a 10 year old boy (laughs) and but as he's testing himself out and figuring things out you know and and learning the rules of the world Mm -hmm. um that was fun i like that yeah i like that it did a good job, and the, the they didn't make it too obvious that you know Superman was was uh, loosely based on him. It was just sort of like, hey, this is, and the, I mean the the director uh, Andrew Stanton, I think yeah, he was the director. Yeah. He he did a really good job in trying to make this its own standalone piece. Mm-hmm. You know, as if this had come out before, like you know, this could have come out in '76. You know, albeit that you couldn't have done all the special effects and everything, but this could have this could have been the influence, you know, the the visual, the on screen influence for Star Wars and for, uh, you know, uh, Alien and or you know all the other different the 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 stuff that came out afterwards, the the planet bound, um, or even spaceship bound. You know, this is something that's that has that that finiteness. It's it's bound on one thing. You know, it could have been the influence for those, and I think he did a, a good job bringing it back to that instead of saying, you know, well, I'm going to just build on top of all these other things that have been done. Yeah, I, I, I did feel that this was, I mean, the way they they built this movie, they were building it as if to say, you know, here is, here's the foundation for a lot of your sci-fi, mm-hmm. you know, and and yeah. we're gonna we're gonna go ahead and take it, and we're not gonna worry about what's come before as far as movies go. Mm-hmm. We're just taking this old concept 
Yeah. And and they kept the period too. Yeah. You know, definitely. the 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 character is uh he's a Civil, Civil War. War vet. Yeah. And uh I was surprised that they didn't try and 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 do something, you know, to to make it more modern or whatever. Yeah. Cuz just a couple of years ago they did a a movie A Princess of Mars and they set it in more modern day. And uh, oh, it was, uh, I think it was right. a, a Viet, I don't think it was a Vietnam, I think it was an Afghanistan sniper or something, and he gets transported to a planet that the the natives, I think, uh, I don't know, I, I'm getting this wrong, but I think the natives call it Barsoom or they call it Mars or something. So there's like elements to the yeah, story. that came out at the same time as Avatar, didn't it? Uh, I think, wasn't yeah. that wasn't that, that uh, what's that company? Uh... Asylum or something like that. It's a company like that, that makes makes mockbusters, is what they call them. Yeah, and it's it's the fake version of the blockbuster. So there's Transmorphers. Yeah, and um, oh, which was I I watched part of that. Oh my goodness, you know, it's it's very very low budget. But they also did a Sherlock Holmes movie that was uh Sherlock Holmes investigating you know some crimes and stuff. But it's like the steampunk thing with dinosaurs and. Oh, okay. It was just insane. And so I did not silly. see the John Carter of Mars one that they did, or Princess of Mars that they did. No, but, I I came across it while I was researching. But the so. box, the box said, I remember the box on it said, um, the story that inspired Avatar. Wow. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, obviously, you know, they're they're trying to to sell this as you know, hey, if you liked Avatar, yeah. and there are some striking similarities. You know, there's a, a a translation, let's say, of characters. I don't want to give too much away. There's a uh, you know a, a an overly tall alien race that is uh, more savage with four arms. By the way, that four was arms, something yeah. that bothered me about Avatar. Yeah, uh, Avatar. Every creature on the whole planet has six limbs. Yeah, the dragons had legs, wings, and yeah. arms, and every other you know the those rhino creatures had six legs, and then you right. had. And then the intelligent species, four limbs. Every yeah. other creature on the whole planet has six, except right. for these ones. Come on. Yeah, it was kind of silly. Um, but yeah, well, let's talk about these these creatures though from okay. from John Carter. What'd you what think? You, I was impressed. I liked it. I, it the uh, aliens, if if you guys haven't seen the movie or anything about it, they have tusks, sort of that go up instead of. Uh, well, the males go up. Yeah, they, they they come like on their jawline. Yeah, and go out and go up, and then the females come from their jawline but go down. Yeah, and it's individual. Like each one has their own. And if you really look, I mean, they do have face paint and, and things like that, so you can tell them apart. But if you're looking at the tusks, you can tell them apart as well. You and know? they use them. Yeah, I know. Yeah, when the, they when did the, that. the two alpha males were kind of you know. Yep, they locked button heads. They locked tusks. Yeah, that was cool. That was yeah. It was it was a way where, you know, in the books, I don't think they covered that. You know, I think they just said these things had tusks and sort of you know he wanted to uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs wanted to make it seem like these things were frightening, just visually frightening. Yeah. So he gave him tusks, and now we have the the movie adding a little bit to that, and all of a sudden you you know you see the tusks as what animals would use them for. You know, for for aggression. But let's talk about these humans too, because this is another thing that has to do with the effects. Is they're they have these awesome flying machines? They did, yeah. 
I love these flying machines. I love the look of the technology. They don't explain the technology. They don't. And I don't, one thing I don't like about the technology is that some things that seem really frail can seemingly take a ton of beating. <laughs> and then there are some things that you would think, oh, these have some you know, shields or at least some sort of protection. And those things, you know, it's like one shot and they're done. <laughs> So I didn't particularly think that it was well thought out the way that the uh, the I'm not want air battles that were, were taking place. Well, I wonder though. But they were beautiful. I'd I'd like to see some of the the uh, concept design to see just actually what it. I mean, what were they thinking when they were doing this? Because there's there there was a a logic to it. You could feel mm-hmm. it felt right, but they yep. never explained how this technology for the how these things fly works and. Right. And I'm okay with them not explaining to it as long as it feels good. But and the thing is, if this if this movie were were made, you know, in the early part of last century, you know, if if he wrote the books and they said, "Hey, let's make some movies," you know, the the black and white, uh, non-talking movies, silent movies, or even you know, in the 30s or something, when I think they actually were starting to come up with a cartoon. Yeah, uh, yeah. version of it but they didn't I, th- I think they would they would have to sort of touch on it because the the technology would have been so new to people that people would say like oh wow well you know obviously the Wright brothers came up with this and you know that it would that would be so fresh that they would say how how would that happen on this planet who are the Wright brothers on this planet and you, you mentioned the Wright brothers nowadays to most kid teenagers and they'll be like the Wright who <laughs> I, I, I don't know though because if you look at Metropolis you know, they, I don't know if they really explained like how things worked in Metropolis. It was just, was magical. Metro- oh, um, uh, Metropolis, well, the, the movie from, yeah. you know, 1910 but, but or something. That, but that was but, set in the future. This is set in the past. What? So, well, it's set in the past, but it's set on another planet. It is, but it's like still. The technology comes from this other planet. And so I think the way it's written here, as I think the way it would play out if they had made it then, was. It just works. Go with us. I and, guess. And maybe not have the, even the logic that this felt like it had. I think Or so. the, the thought You're probably anyway. Right. And I think when you when you put in the um you know the, the is it too much of a spoiler to say who the really big the actual threat? I don't know if that's too much of a spoiler. But once you find oh. out who the actual threat is and you find out a little bit about them you oh those guys yeah you seem to to think to yourself you know well is is there anything that's beyond their scope um because of the different things that they introduce well i think yeah and the main villains you know the 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 behind well the 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 ones who are kind of pulling the strings and stuff those guys again i feel like there was a good set of laws for them as far as what they can and can't do, although part of their character being they maybe don't even know what they can't do, you know, and there's just some good character stuff going on too. There that. were, and I did like the idea of the characters, although I didn't feel like I, I I felt like we were told by them what they were all about instead of you know discovering it or being shown. You know, it, it wasn't proved. Right. So you it, you still get this idea that you know maybe they're wildly powerful, but how powerful? And the other thing is they tell a whole lot of stuff. You know, there there is a lot of, for them. There's a lot of show 
I mean, a lot of telling rather than showing. Yeah. Um, I'm watching this and I'm thinking, I don't believe that. You know, I'm wondering, you know, are they telling the truth? Because, well, they're bad. You know, they're, right. And I guess they have no reason to lie because, you know, they don't answer to anyone or whatever. But I'm thinking to myself, I don't know if this is really. Yeah. You know, the things they're saying don't seem like it's true because why would you, you know, do the the classic bad guy, you know? Well, this is what we're doing, and this is why we're doing, and we can tell you now because you're yeah. going to die. You know, right? Monologuing, but I think it's, it, it's plot exposition. It has to go somewhere. Yeah, absolutely. But it, I think one of the things is I think they have no reason to tell the truth either. I yeah, think they're yeah. they're so deep in whatever they're doing that you know they have no qualms saying whatever comes to mind you know whatever fills that space at this moment that furthers their machinations that's that's what they're going to say yeah well i like so, them being in this story and so you, yeah you have these kind of three or four parties you know you have the the mars humans who are divided in two and you have the the tharks tharks you know mm-hmm. and and although there's there's this whole this kind of barbaric tharks in the middle there who i'm wondering that's is that the setup for the sequel is <laughs> you've got this this other group of tharks who are you know kind of they, they they pop up and then they go away um and then you have this other you know these other bad guys and um between the four of them there's a lot of plot twists and a right. lot of just um things happening that I, you know, part of it I'm expecting, part of it I'm not, and then I'm realizing, oh, okay, that's that's where this was going. That's that makes sense. That makes mm-hmm. sense. I like that. Um, and I'm, I mean, we won't talk about the ending at all, but I love the the twisty, twisty plotty stuff going on at the at the end of the movie. Well, I like the, the one thing that was was good. If you, if you read the novels, some of them are set up in. It, it's as if they were real. They really happened, and Edgar Rice Burroughs uh, found the manuscripts or was given them or whatever, and then you know transcribed them and, and put them out there for the public to to read and to to enjoy. Um, but of course, they're written, uh, you know, in very much that period. You know, Dracula was written as if it was letters and yeah, things yeah. like that. Um, but just that same way, and the this is is set up very similarly and not in a in a way that uh, a lot of films do this nowadays like there's an edgar Allan poe film coming out that you know edgar Allan poe all his uh, someone is is a mass murderer and they're killing people and basing them on edgar Allan poe's stuff so he has to sort of be a literary character in this movie you know and and it, it sort of breaks breaks that that separation that I like to have, you know, (laughs) but this, it is actually following how the books started, you know, and the the very first thing you read in the book is about how, you know, he was called to his, uh, to, to John Carter's place and he wasn't able to get there in time. And, and, uh, you know, John Carter was, uh, put in this, uh, you know, grave, this, this, uh, mausoleum or whatever. Um, they can only open from the inside and you're like, whoa, only opens from the inside. Yeah, it How starts out with a nice, yeah. interesting mystery. Yeah. Um, and I was, uh, did you know they were going to use Edgar Allan Poe before, or not, uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs before? I did not going know. to see it. Were you nope. surprised about that? Because 
it so feels I, it feels old school. Yeah. As far as the storytelling goes. And what I liked I thought, it. What I thought they were going to do is jump is you know have the, roll the credits in the beginning and do some you know thematic stuff where you don't really know what you're looking at and then all of a sudden you realize it's Mars. You know, someone wakes up and he's looking around and he's on Mars and then, you know, backtrack from there and he's remembering the different mm-hmm. things and all that stuff. And I thought they were going to fill in uh, the past that way. I didn't, th- I didn't think they were going to have such a huge setup at the beginning of him actually on Earth. Um, but, you know, that was all to set up. Well, it, yeah, and you have Edgar Rice Burroughs and he's reading the journal and that's the story. That's our yep. movie. Yep. is is the journal of of John Carter. Right. Um, I I like that. I like that setup. Yep. Um, all right. Well, what else do you got? What else? Let me look at my notes. Um I did mention that uh about Deja Thoris, who is the the princess and her fighting prowess and uh, this is something that happens in movies, and it's just shorthand for we don't know what else to do. Um, and I don't like it. And what is it? <laughs> and it happens too much. Uh, there's another character, a, 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 a one of the tall aliens, uh-huh. and uh, she's uh, a young one of the tall aliens and they're not overly strong. They're not, you know, anything spectacular except they have four arms. Um, and of course, Deja Thoris is a, a warrior princess. And at one point to get away, um, John Carter basically just tosses Deja over to Sola for her to hold while John, while they ride an animal off into this, off into the distance, and John Carter has to go and do something. And I'm like, really? She's a warrior princess. <laughs> if she really wants to be somewhere else, she's not going to have Sola stand in her way. You know, Sola is is basically a little girl, and I didn't like that. There were d- certain things where it did that shorthand where I don't like it. Another one was, um, you know, the, this was horrible. If you know anything about you know physics and spatial physics, uh, at one point John Carter jumps, and then Deja Thoris falls from something, and they meet in air. So John Carter is able to, and he can't change anything while he's in air. If he's in the air, he's like the Hulk. If he if something hits him, he falls to the ground. But he's able to time his jump perfectly to anticipate her falling. At the exact everything to meet her where she is, so he he saves her, and I'm like, that's just uh, it's sloppy. It I looked just, cool. It looked it real, looked really cool. But it was the type of thing where you know what something can look cool and real sloppy at the yeah. same time. Well, you know? let's let's go back to this the princess character because okay. I mean technically she's the title character. Yes, you know, and I guess from the book. She doesn't wear anything. Um, At some points, yeah. Uh, but in the movie, you know, she's got her her skimpy warrior gar- garb, and then her her skimpy, yeah. you know, dressy dress thing. Yeah. Picture um, Leela from Doctor Who or something like that, you know. But but I'm I'm thinking to myself about this character. It, it's a little. It, it kind of goes to those two extremes. Of she's so competent because she's a female. 
So she's since she's the female lead, she can do everything. There's nothing she can't do. <laughs> but then on the other hand, because we're watching a movie called John Carter, you know, that we're obviously focusing on the dude. Right. You know, who's gonna you know save the day, rescue her, you know, and those kind of things. And in some cases, maybe rescue her, even though she doesn't need it because mm-hmm. she's so competent. All right. Um, that you, you, that was one thing that I, I just kind of noticed was they, they tried to kind of walk the line between she's so amazing. She doesn't need anyone's help, but she also needs to be the damsel in distress. And it, it this happens a lot. And I think that I look at like Star Wars mm-hmm. and with Princess Leia, I feel like they really found the right um, balance of competent, but then they also still, they still had to rescue her, you know? But the thing with, with Deja Thoris is that she is politically a pawn. So she has no power politically, but she's trying to though. I mean, one thing I did appreciate about that was with the whole science stuff she was doing when she was doing her sciencey things. Right. Yeah. Um, she was trying to be proactive, which I like in my characters. I like my characters to be proactive. Yeah, but um, politically, she was just a pawn. But in every other way, it you know she was extremely competent or over overcompetent. So I think it was an interesting uh, balance that way. Saying you know here's someone who is so competent in, in so many different things, and in this one thing, she has no power. You know, and sort of like a and. You know, you're looking at someone who it's, you know, Superman with a, a, a kryptonite necklace. You know, I mean, I just it, I just wish she wasn't hadn't been so flawless. I didn't see any kind of room for any kind of growth in that character. Well, yeah, but she's not a growth character, really. <laughs> no, she's not. She's not. But every other character was right. Even the bad guys had some. You know, there's a little bit of growth in in the in our ma- the main the main antagonists. You know, mm-hmm. they had some growth to do, not a lot, but some. Yeah. Um, the leader of the the opposite forces of the humans, he you know he had a little bit of change that he resisted, mm-hmm. and so you know, which is what usually happens. Yeah. Um, and your your. Th- I, I can't get that alien race with Tharks the, the or therns. Yeah. There's two different ones. Yeah, the Tharks are the tall ones with, with the, with the Tharks you've got, you know, there's a lot of character growth there. Well, yeah. Um, and so everyone had room to grow except for her. And I would have liked to have seen her, maybe her, her problem being like what you just said, as far as she has, she's really competent in every area except for this one. Mm-hmm. And maybe it's she overcomes that, or maybe it's that she accepts that she's powerless there. Mm-hmm. Um, and and then, you know, or in looking at her weakness, finds her strength. You know, I I don't know. It, she was she she was a plot device in some places, and and she was eye candy plot device is is what I sometimes felt like they they were trying to overcompensate for the fact they knew she's here to look pretty <laughs> and she's here to be you know part of what moves our plot because she's the princess. And but I think is saying all that I think she she did a very good job. Yes. With what with she did she rose above what she was given, I think. Mm-hmm. 
the the actress playing her. I think. Yeah. Um, Although she had a um, a British accent, so immediately I assumed that she was, you know, from the Empire or you know, she was the a bad evil. guy. Yeah. She was a, she was the villain. Yeah. Uh, okay, so let's talk quickly about some of the effects stuff going on. Okay. Because I was really quite pleasantly surprised with how good these effects looked. There was some parts though where it just I can't imagine watching this on a small television. Because the, yeah, because the it's scene intricate. was so big and there's so much stuff in the scene. And so your your characters are just these little tiny things moving around on the screen. Even on a you know a theater screen, they right. were small. Yeah. And so I'm, but there was I I'm watching these uh these ships, these flying ships. At the very beginning of the movie, I'm thinking to myself, these look those look like models. They look like they're actually real. And and maybe even like model work or whatever. But right. then you can see there's little tiny people, you know, yeah. running around on them and controlling them. Yeah. And and there's so much of the ship is open to the to the air. And so right. you, you see the insides. It's not just a spaceship where you can't see anything except for maybe a shadow walking past a, a window. But it's you, you can see them. They're running around. They're moving parts. Yeah. They're, they're controlling the ships. It was it, – I was impressed. I really liked that. And it had a very uh, steampunk feel to it. It, didn't, yeah. it, it wasn't yeah, over the top. To, yeah. But I think they, they really said, you know, hey, let's, let's do a little steampunk here and, and make it feel – as if it were, it, if it was a hundred years, you know, ago that they were making the movie, or at least the designs for the movie. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of wood, a lot of textures, a lot of you know, very interesting um, ways that they put things together. Well, and ornately detailed, like railings yeah. and walkways, and yeah, uh, yeah I just, I, I was very impressed with all the technology as far as yeah. as far as the the world technology right right um, and the creature effects again i just uh what, yeah, was the, did a great job. what was the name of the dog thing uh woola woola that thing you know that was awesome he could have been super annoying oh it could have been jar jar but it, it turned out to have be been a jar jar but yeah well or or lassie you know <laughs> oh so yes yeah, like super lassie yeah it, it, and it could have been really annoying but they really they dialed it back and treated it like a pet would be in the real world rather than a pet in a movie yeah. for kids, which this movie was not for kids. I think it was for 10 year old boys. You know, I think it really had that appeal to it. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, I have an eight year old girl. I would not have brought her to this, uh, you know, just too much blood and guts, that type of thing. Um, the 10 year old boys, uh, you know, it didn't have any nudity. It had, uh, a couple of uh, instances of taking the Lord's name in vain, which you know is regrettable because you don't really need it. Um, it's PG thirteen. It is PG thirteen, but for PG thirteen, you know, it, it, it would there was a lot of blood, a lot of combat, which is what I expected. Yeah, and uh, you know, I didn't think that they were going to go. I, I I thought they would go more, you know, with uh, you know a more risque uh, type of stuff with the the princess instead of you know just throwing in a couple of uh you know words that really didn't need to be in the script i mean i just but let me ask you this then your boys did they like it 
They loved it. Yeah. (laughs) Because I'm watching it and I'm liking it and I'm enjoying what I'm seeing. But I'm thinking to myself, is this the movie that if I'd seen this when I was 10, 11, 12, would I have really enjoyed and been engaged by it? Because it seems Mm -hmm. slow in some parts. And, you know, okay, the music thing I was going to ask you about, there's a battle scene in the middle of the movie Mm -hmm. that was really the only... Um, what I thought was that muscular pulp, uh, Robert E. Howard, Edgar Rice, or uh, Edgar Rice, Burroughs. Edgar Rice Burroughs, those you know those that Conan Tarzan type feel. And mm-hmm. I haven't re- I haven't read any John Carter books. I've read Conan and I've read Tarzan, and so I and and some other you know pulp things from from right. the turn of the century. Right. That scene is him, you know, and he's fighting. He's fighting the the, the Martian creatures, the the Thurks, Tharks, Tharks. He's fighting the Tharks, and he's just going to town. And yeah. they're coming, and they keep coming and coming and coming. And yeah. I'm reminded of Conan, you know, and, yeah, that type of thing, or Samson. But yeah, the music, the, the music there, is like this very slow and melodic and mournful. Um, music, yeah, and it's not the heroic march. Yeah, well, because he's 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 doing this because I mean he's just he has to, and it's and not it's a anything. Sacrifice. It's, it's not. Yeah, yeah, it's not. He's not doing it in rage. Yeah, although you know he's he's working himself up. You know, as far as just oh yeah, you would do a battle. But I mean, he's <laughs> and it's not like he's doing it to rescue someone at the end of the the line or whatever. But there's. And then there's the there's a, a juxtaposition there of the music, and there's a juxtaposition that I won't tell right now. But there's a juxtaposition of of you know something else that you're bouncing around as you're in that scene, um, and it kind of took the movie in a different direction because it could have just been roar, blood, right. guts, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. and in ter- instead it was you know just this. Uh, it reminded me of Michael G- Giacchino's. Um, when he did the big, he scored the beginning of uh, Star Trek, the Star Trek movie, mm-hmm. where yeah. um, you know the ship comes through and it attacks, and Jim, you know Captain Kirk's father and mother are on the ship, right. and she's yeah. giving birth to Captain Kirk. He's not Captain, obviously. Cause, you know, <laughs> he was baby. born a Captain. Yeah. Well, almost, almost <laughs> in that movie, but um, you know, and his father is is doing the heroic you know, sacrifice, you know, I'm going to sacrifice myself, um, to save my son and my wife. And that music is just, you know, takes it to another level where I, as a, as a father and as a father, especially who had a young uh, daughter at that time, Mm -hmm. who I, I got choked up every time, all three times that I saw that movie in the theater, I, I got choked up and, I didn't get choked up with John Carter here, but that music kind of took me back to that feel of just yeah. this slow and melodic and juxtaposed against like he is going to town yeah, and they are coming and he is killing and they keep coming and he keeps killing and they take it like, I, I don't want to give away the end of this scene, but it like goes to that just logical extreme. Where yeah. You're just like, Oh my goodness. Yeah, that's what would happen. Yeah. Even with that scene, 
you know, I mean, the the boys that I took were or that I was that were, were with me were church kids, and they had seen comic books with Samson or mm-hmm. you know David and Goliath or whatever, and they'd seen stuff just like that. So I had I didn't have but, a problem. But were they them. enjoying it? I mean, does that did that scene engage them? They didn't mention it one way or the other, but you know, it was. I think it was for them. It was another scene in the movie, and I mean, I, I don't know how much of when you're a ten year old, how many, how many, you know, plot points and things like that you really pick up. Um, but you know, at that point in their lives, I think it's just you know, as long as as nothing is completely jarring, and you know, the Pac Man comes onto the screen or something like that, it, it's not going to make that much of a a huge impact on them it it just it adds to the whole of the story well, and i think that did and to me it, it added to the impact and i yeah i liked that i, yeah. I liked what they were doing with that scene right. um, and there's lots and lots of big triumphant battling to happen later too and right. earlier i mean it's just oh, yeah. there's a lot of battling in this movie. yes Hold on. and PG-13. i enjoyed it you know as i'm as i'm watching it i'm in, i'm i'm enjoying the ride so would you would you recommend it? I I would, I would. I'd recommend it as you know, a big action movie with a little bit of romance and a little bit of. There's some themes that I was, I was digging. You know, what, there's what deeper themes did you see in there? I didn't see a lot. Don't don't <laughs> get me wrong, but there is there is the theme of change of of characters changing, and of course the change comes from the power of love. You know, <laughs> the power of love conquers all, and yeah. But you know, you have this—you have this bitter, hardened person who can't let go of the past, right? And who just doesn't believe in anything, and doesn't believe that anything is worth fighting for in this world, right? And then he's thrown into a world where he has to fight, you know. Or yeah, I mean, it's even more extreme than what he found on Earth, where you know he's—he can turn his back. But does he want to turn his back? And right. you know, there's love involved now, and everything like that. So there's that. There's also the um, there was a theme of sacrifice going throughout there as well. Um, you know, personal sacrifice, and that kind of goes with the change with the character. Right. Um, as know. a as a creator, as a writer yourself. Wait, wait, wait. I got one more theme. Okay, go ahead. That I picked up on that I don't know if they were planning this or meaning this, and it didn't go along with the overarching theme of the whole movie but they had a couple things where they were mentioning they're talking john carter's talking to the princess that he's from earth and she doesn't believe him mm-hmm. and she says you're mad and he says or i'm a liar and then of course there's that third logical choice that can be made he's either a madman a liar or he's telling the truth that's right you know and that, and that goes back to i don't know if c.s lewis, lewis invented yeah those arguments but you know, at least yeah jesus is either a madman a liar or telling the truth when he was yeah. on earth saying he was god right and you know i i don't know if they were intentionally you know using that because of c.s lewis or if they're just it's clever and it fits in the script yeah but um but i i, I thought of it immediately as they were thinking you know saying that oh, that's, that's that's kind of fun <laughs> i like that you went there i don't know if you went there on purpose but i like that you went there and one interesting touch 
that uh, it's sort of along it was around that time um, they are trying to figure out exactly where he's from and they lay out rocks in orbits around a, another rock and interestingly they <laughs> did you catch it nine th- th- well there was nine rocks but one represents the sun so there's eight rocks oh they didn't and include pluto then. they didn't include pluto because at the time it hadn't been in, it hadn't been discovered and now it doesn't matter and now it doesn't matter but the interesting thing is what is pluto to these people i mean in the in the actual book um, they have a device where they can see other planets, um, you know. The, and when um, when John Carter is introduced to uh, to Deja Thoris, she knows intimate details about Earth because she has seen it, you know, with with their devices. And she says, you know, they can see on on any other planet or a star, and see what's happening on those things. Hmm. And it, it, that was completely lost in the movie. I mean, it would it would just recast the movie. I think um, as something that yeah, you know, I'm glad they didn't have that. It wouldn't it wouldn't have fit in. Um, but it was interesting that they that they did that with the uh, with the planets. And I, I don't know if it was because someone was dopey enough to think that there's all you know that Pluto never was a planet, so uh, you know, they wouldn't include it because they're snobby, or if they said you know well Pluto hadn't been discovered yet, and so we're not going to put it in there. So you know it's it's one or the other, but it was interesting nonetheless. Yeah. <laughs> now, as a writer, yeah. Um, when you write a book, mm-hmm. do you? concentrate heavily on the protagonist being a like a change character or a steadfast character that type of feel do you d- does that really come into it or the, does it just change doesn't have to be there but there has to be the potential for change right and mm-hmm. and it comes down to character choice then i I, right. I think a character a good protagonist and a good antagonist there there needs to be the potential for change and the potential for change comes from your uh, character's choice, right? And absolutely. how they respond to things. Now, when they take a, a source material mm-hmm. and a, and the protagonist is a certain way, like for instance, in the source material, um, John Carter is a steadfast character. At the end, he's the same as in the beginning because he has made that choice not to change for the worse. In the movie, they recast it a little bit, and I won't you know ruin any plot points or anything, but they make it so that he is a uh, character that changes from the beginning to the end. So he has made a choice to be better than he was at the beginning, mm-hmm. which is you know the, the nature of that type of thing. Does that bother you as, as someone watching something from a, as, for, that has well, something? Well, it, it depends. If, if they changed my source material, right. then I would have a problem with that. Okay. Because obviously I'm not going to do anything wrong. Why are they changing what, <laughs> what I've done? That's right. You've yeah. written perfect. Exactly. But – um, no, I do think it's more satisfying to have a character go through uh, trials that when they come out on the other end, they have changed for the better. Really? That's more satisfying to me as a reader. Really? Okay. It's not always the best choice for the story. It's not always the best choice for the character. And not having read the source material here... I like what they did with it. I like what they did with him, that he comes through and he's he's a better person on the other side. Okay. It's simplistic, you know. It's that it's an action adventure movie, right. 
Yeah. But, but it's at an the action same adventure time, movie that took the time to develop character and and have some some character change and movement and momentum. Right. But at the same time, I really enjoy sometimes when you get a movie with a really strong character at the beginning, given these you know choices, really hard choices, and does not take them because of the you know inevitable outcome of, of that's the a different sh- kind of story though it is and that's I've, a different kind of story and that's a, sometimes a more honest story right. but it's not necessarily a more satisfying story i don't know perhaps we just you know like slightly different things i mean there's plenty of stuff that we like that's the same so i don't think this is a major dividing point but no I, again you have to be true to the characters though and when you're doing an adaptation, you are not doing the same character as the original source material, especially if you change plot at all. Mm-hmm. And if you change the plot, you know, it kind of goes back to our time travel discussion, yeah. you know, where when you change the events that happen around you, that changes how you react to the events. And so you change a character, you change a character's story, you're going to change the character. Right. Um, and I don't know how close they follow any of the original plot for this movie and the original book, but yeah, they took elements of the plot. They def- <laughs> of the it, first three books, yeah, it did not feel like they were. It, it felt like to me, the screenwriter came in, had a a skeleton of an idea from the originals, and then they said, "Let's make a better, uh, not a better story, but a story that's going to fit a." two hour and 15 minute movie that we're trying to, you know, when people walk out of the theater, we want them to walk out with a smile on their face. We want them to walk out feeling like they've, they've seen something that they enjoy because when you walk out, you know, if you end on a somber note, like say you have a character who he needs to do the right thing. And so he goes through all this and finally he gets to the end and he just, he doesn't do the right thing. He's gone through all this, but he still chooses not to do the right thing. Right. Um, it's got to be really good for that to be pulled off right. and to feel like you've been through a satisfying character arc. Yeah. So now, do do you feel in the it, it, not giving away any of the details of the end, but do you feel that um, the end was satisfying to you as a as a, a viewer? Yes, and I was worried that it wouldn't be. I was worried after I saw some, you know, we're getting close to the end. I'm thinking, oh, wait, they're going here with this? Oh. But then I realized, no, and I kind of was able to kind of piece together some of the twists there at the end. Right. And the guy I was with at the movie, he said, why didn't he just do that? And I said, because this is why. (laughs) And then I was right. But they twisted it, though. I thought they're going this way with it. And then they twisted it, and I thought, oh, I'm wrong. They went this other direction. And then they went back, and I, I turned out to be right. You know, cool. I was like, oh, that's cool. I like the ending. I like that um, Edgar Rice Burroughs actually played a part mm-hmm. in, in the story. You know, he's there at the beginning, and he's there at the end. But he's not just there to open the journal you know, right. and, and read the story for us. Right. He's, he's there because... Uh, he's a part of John Carter's life, right? You know, and I I like that. But overall, I I do recommend it. I I'm probably not going to take my son to see it in the theater because that's a lot of money. It is, <laughs> yeah. It um, is, yeah. And the, and the 3D, I don't think 
makes it so out outside the box special that you would have to see it in the theater. You know, I mean, the, with us, we have the the theater, and it's very close, and it's one of the biggest screens in the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Keep right. So, I mean, I feel like every time that a, a movie comes out that I I want to see, I have to see it in 3D on one on of the biggest IMAX. screens in the world. I just have to. And uh, but do you recommend this movie? Let's forget the theater. Do you recommend the movie? With a couple of caveats with the, the language, you know, if, you, if you're sensitive to language, if you're going to bring kids that aren't used to that language, you, know, you just might want to warn them that some people say some things that aren't so nice. Um, anyone who goes to a public school. But yeah, they, anyone that goes to a public school. They're hearing much, much worse, much, much more often. There is not much going on with the language. Yeah, pretty much. Um, but uh, if you're a 10-year-old boy or if you have those uh, sensibilities, um, I would say, yeah, I would recommend it highly, yeah. You think there's enough romance for my wife, who's not a geek? Right. No, no. Although the the character is, is uh, Deja Thoris is a very strong character, and you know, to tell the truth, the um, the Thark uh, girl, uh, Sola, is as much as she's in the film, she she has a, a good part to play. So, yeah. you know, so there's something there. If if you take a a, a younger girl, like eleven or twelve year old girl, you know. It, as long as she can understand that that's an 11 or 12 year old alien with tusks that's a little girl, you know. Is <laughs> she meant to um, be a little girl? I, I, yeah, I mean, she's, she's, she's supposed to be a young female. She's not much smaller than the, the other characters that are around her. She's not, but, but she is. She is. Uh, she's, I mean, she's uh, put up to be the daughter of Tars Tarkas, which is one of the, the leaders of the, um, the Tharks. So, you know, just. Whenever you have someone who is is a daughter of someone, and you don't have the, um, you know the you don't know you don't know the ages of these things, you know they're they're supposed to live be living for hundreds of years, so okay. you know they could, okay. so it, it, she's supposed to be a younger version of them. Yes. Well, we call this a minisode, Steve. We've gone for an hour. Are you serious? Yeah. Oh, we have. Yeah, and there were some things we didn't even talk about that I wanted to talk about. But um, what's a maxi minisode? I guess. I guess so. What did you want to talk about? Anything real quick that we can hit? No, nothing real quick, and nothing that I mean. We've we've covered a lot of the stuff. You know, we talk, we covered the creatures and the battles and the um, some of the 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 meat. Um, and I, I will I will say this. You know, some movies there's enough meat in them that you're like, yeah, go see this movie because there's some great ideas in this movie. This one doesn't have like a lot of awesome mm, killer, no. you know, this is going to make you think moments. Um, no, but uh, the, there's, there's, there's some satisfying stuff. There. If you dig, there are, what do you think real quick? What did you think about the, uh, the, the discussions and the things they broached with religion, with the Martian religion? It was interesting. Do you have any major thoughts on it? Or? Not really, because they didn't really touch on a lot. No, but they, I think... you know, the the whole idea was: is it real or not? Right. You know, and I think a future one of the I think they're going to probably do you know one or two more movies based on it, and if they do, I think one of them is just going to be um, dealing with that. One of the I think the the second novel is called The Gods of Mars, so. You know, if they continue on with, with the meat that they've pulled out of the first three books, um, and 
different things that I saw in this in this movie. I think they they may go that way and and discuss that type of thing. And it, it goes much more in depth. I don't want to give anything away. I did a little research before I. I'll tell you though, you it. can see where you know, assuming that this is fairly uh, true to the um, the spirit of the original books, mm-hmm. you can see where C.S. Lewis's Out of the Silent Planet is kind of a response to some of these these Mars stories, mm-hmm. um, yeah. because they you know they get to Mars and you know Mars is meant to be a, a war you know Mars is the god of war and so right. the Martians in H.G. Wells come to take over the Earth. You know, right. John Carter goes to Mars where there's these, you know, warring um, tribes and right. you know, big battles and stuff. And Ransom in Out of the Silent Planet goes to Mars and the humans are expecting all of that kind of thing. Yeah. But it turns out they're peace loving. Yeah. You know, and they're unfallen. They're unfallen. <laughs> and, and so here you have these humans bringing their guns and everything to, to Mars. Well, so a maxi minisode? What are you going to call it? Well, I think we're going to stick with uh, just not calling it a mini-sode. Okay. Well. <laughs> this is definitely not a mini-sode. No. Nope. Uh, so if you stuck around with us uh, for the last hour and you thought, oh, I'm getting a 20-minute episode. Well, no, <laughs> no you're not. Um, this was our hour-long review. Of, yeah, I guess. <laughs> I mean, Siskel and Ebert, they talked about a movie in five minutes. Why couldn't yeah. we? But. It's an and interesting was, movie. I enjoyed it. And this I wasn't think Shakespeare that, or anything either. So no, kind of, definitely not. But you know, it, I, th- I think it, and it, it, it's a sort of a testament to the movie itself that we could talk about it for an hour, and and still be, you know, not lacking in topics to to. We could go for another, you know, half an hour or so. I don't think I could go another half hour. Well, I don't. I'm just saying. I just threw the number out. Just other to, than to say, you know, the only other topic we didn't talk about is how some things just happen so quick. That yeah. Like, oh, they're getting ready for, for this big, huge bat. Oh, it's done. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And then you're like, okay, this is going to be, oh, that's a huge, long battle. What's going on here? Yeah. So they, they keep you on your toes. They keep oh, yeah. You on your toes. And it's interesting because a lot of movies wouldn't do that. They would say, oh, no, we have to take the time and, and spell this thing out in, in broad, large letters filled with yeah. blood. And here it's more of like an exclamation point. <laughs> there was some blood and gore, but it was all blue. Yeah. I mostly. think that's how they – if it had been red blood, they would have been R, immediate R. But because yeah. it was blue, I think they were able to get away with it. Yeah. For uh, for Dr. Jace, I'm – Congratulations. <laughs> I'm Ben, and with me has been Steve, and we're going to sign off. So, Finally. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, All right, guys. Thank you for Fred. Thank you for listening. Uh, obviously, if you listened this far, and uh, hey, let us know what you thought of the movie if you saw it, and we definitely. will include your comments in our next real episode. That is a real episode, not intended to be a mini episode. There you go. All right. <laughs> all right, everybody. God bless you all. Godspeed. You've been listening to the Strangers and Aliens podcast, hosted by Ben Avery. And that's that nice little blast from the past and a podcast that maybe you don't listen to, but, um, you know, there it is. So thank you for listening. Uh, I really appreciate it. I really do. And, uh, this, like I said, um, (laughs) 
it's kind of bittersweet because if I'm doing more podcasting, it means I have less writing. And sometimes the less writing just means there isn't an intense deadline. This time around, there was an intense deadline for a lot of pages. That's a good thing for me because, you know, my wife uh, is a stay-at-home mom. And so I have a full-time job with a full-time salary. But in today's world, you got to have two incomes. And so my second income comes from my part-time job, which tends to be uh, writing various things. And so it's a good thing. But at the same time... Now, you know, um, I have more time for podcasting, but, uh, you know, podcasting doesn't pay bills. It just makes life fun. And that's not a bad thing, but I am glad to be back doing this kind of thing and reading comic books, having fun reading comic books. In fact, I kind of have a new phrase, and this comes out of um, actually a future episode. (laughs) about swamp monsters which had to wait because this is episode number 100 and so the swamp monster thing is happening after this episode but the phrase i'm about to use comes from that podcast it doesn't matter time travel is hard as i've said before but if you're not having fun reading comics you're doing it wrong and you know you're doing something wrong and maybe you're picking the wrong thing or you know you're reading for the wrong reasons but if you're not having fun reading comics you're doing something wrong i enjoy reading comics i love talking about them i love talking about them with my friends i love talking about them with you and uh would also love to hear back from you if you would like you know to send us an email and so anyway all that said thank you again for listening and godspeed Thanks for listening to the Comic Book Time Machine's Marvel's Cosmic Comics feed. You can find more discussion of many, many more comics like Superman and Spider-Man, What Ifs and Elseworlds, The Six Million Dollar Man and Batman, comics seven days old and seven decades old, on our main feed, which you can find on iTunes or at comicbooktimemachine.com. We'd also love it if you join us on Facebook at facebook.com or on Twitter, where we are at Comic Time. and Ebert, they talked about a movie in five minutes. Why couldn't we?